what I call Christian ceremonies, our, our celebration events that were commanded by Jesus that the church would do. And there's two primary ones. One is baptism. We talked about baptism last Sunday. And uh, well, it was a highlight when we sang um, Oh Happy Day at the end. And to hear you and I was sharing with people I wanted to get up here and dance like David, but without taking the clothes off kind of thing. I was just so moved. And, and then uh, Wednesday... Uh, to see people come together in just such a family setting and to see 18 people baptized and uh, to hear some of the testimonies. To have a person who just recently accepted Christ um, pray through and choose to be baptized and to step into those waters that talk about the renewal and cleansing that comes from pure faith in the grace of God. What I want to do is talk about communion today. We, kind of in this evangelical tradition, talk about ordinances, which are commands. These are things that Jesus said do. Baptism is something he, he asks people to do when they make this confession of faith and understand that they have moved into this new life and they follow it. With One of their first steps, often, of obedience is, is to be baptized. Well, one of the other things that Jesus commanded his disciples to do as they sat around just... Um, Moments, in a sense, before his death, this last meal together, a Passover meal, which he transformed into a last supper in a, in a new way. A Passover meal which would take the blood and, and smear it on the doorpost so that all who had that over their doorpost, the angel of death would pass by and they would be saved. And Jesus, in a very real way, said, you know, my blood now will be shed for you. And, and in the same way, anyone who says, I claim that blood for me, and in a sense applies it to their heart in faith, um, know that they have entered into this new life with God, which will be forever. And this angel of death will pass over as we will enter into his life now for eternity, the very step of faith we move into that life and he said so take when you come together this meal and celebrate what i've done for you well i remember my first communion uh some of you who have had some church experience may recall some of your first communions and the one that i'm recalling is not one so much that I remember because I actually took it and took part in it. I remember it, and it was memorable in a, in a whole other way. Um, it was because of what happened in that communion. I was about four or five years of age. I remember exactly where I was sitting. Some of you who are um, seniors here can remember Crystal Free Church in the old church. And I sat, I remember, I can actually remember where I was sitting. There's two sides to it, and I was sitting near the back with my mom. Uh, my brother Keith and I had already been separated by the first hymn which is, was pretty common. You know, we got the started out, and Mom was good about that, but by the hymn time, we were already separated. So I remember it was late. I'm guessing probably a little past noon, and uh, I was tired. I was hungry. I had seen the communion process before, but this one stuck in my mind to this day because this time I wanted some. I mean, I felt like I had paid my dues like everyone else. I had sat on the hard pews. I had listened to a half-hour message. I tried to be quiet for most of it. I had sang and stood and bowed my head and did those things, and all I wanted was a cracker, and most of all, honestly, most of all, I wanted some grape juice. The next 15 minutes, I think it was, was a fight for uh, my mom and myself. 
probably not one of the spiritual high points of her life. I remember with great clarity, my mom would sit next to me and she'd have her arms folded and she had this incredible way, some of you have experienced this as well, where she could just grab your arm and pinch you. And I remember that finger and thumb grabbing me and her leaning down with the threat, the second thing so clear in my mind, that I would be getting a spanking. And I I, I think I may have calmed down a little bit at that point and I remember another thing with great clarity. I remember, though, I wanted this, how important this was to people. There were people that I could see who, as this was occurring, had tears in their eyes. Tears, not like my tears that I was experiencing from the pinch. (laughs) But tears because something was happening that was so important. And at four or five, I didn't quite understand. I wanted a cracker and some grape juice. And I'm really hoping in this morning that I might be able to help move some people from just cracker and grape juice to a deeper understanding of why we do what we do. We do this monthly. We do this in obedience because Jesus commanded that we do it. Now, we do it monthly. Some people do it every week. Some people do it quarterly. The command is to do it repeatedly and in somewhat of an often basis so that we would remember how much God loved us through His Son, Jesus. So what I want to do is just share with you this morning some simple concepts of um, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the spiritual presence and symbolic presence. No, just kidding. Um, We won't do that. I really just want to share with you four things that I hope will be helpful to you. It's more on this side. There's so much I could talk about when it comes to communion. What I really want to talk about is, what are we doing here and what's your response? This, this could be something I hope you could take and actually write down somewhere. And, and every time you take communion, remember these four things are important when it comes to communion. And the first is what we look back. Every time we take communion, it's an opportunity to kind of look back and remember. The second thing I want us to be looking at is that we look in. It's a time to personally reflect and examine. And the third thing we'll look at is that we look around. It's a time for us to recognize and to reconcile and to see where we can serve. And the fourth is a look forward. We take this meal always anticipating yet what's to come. So basically those four things, looking back, looking in, looking around, and looking forward. I want to read to you what is often read at communion services. It's, it's read almost in all different church settings. And I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, chapter, chapter 11, verses 23 through verse 32. And I'm going to read it from the message. And the reason I've chosen the message is paraphrase, which is a paraphrase. It's not necessarily a great study Bible, but it's a good reading Bible because it actually has no... Often you can kind of dis, let go of some of the verse notations and you can read it as if it's being read in that common language, that Koine Greek, which would be our common language of the day. So let me just uh, read this to you. As Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, we were having some understanding of, you know, what really is this meal? Is it just crackers and grape juice, or what is it really about? Paul writes, let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I received my instructions from the Master himself and passed them on to you. 
The master Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the Master returns. And you must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Master irreverently is like the part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. If you gave no thought, or worse, you don't care about the broken body of the Master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you, even now, are listless and sick, and others have gone to an early grave. If we don't get this straight now, we won't, have to be, we won't have to be straightened out later. Better to be confronted by the Master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. Well, look back. We're called to remember, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, and, and from the NIV, he says, For I received from, you the, from the Lord what I passed on to you. What I, what I was actually given with regard to this meal I'm going to pass on to you, this is kind of how you conduct yourself in the meal. This is what it's all about. And he says, And when you, when you take this my body... In verse 24 of the NIV, which is for you, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then a little bit later in verse 25, he says, in the same way, the cup, which is this new covenant, which is in a sense like the Passover or the blood is applied to that doorpost. This blood now, I want you to recognize that will happen when I die on this cross and the blood that has been spilled. This blood will have great impact on your life. It will be the life for you. It will be my grace given to you that you will live in now and you will begin to experience and it will be my life here, the actual spirit of God entering into your life. And as a result of my blood, I want you to remember me. The point in both these is do this as you do this. You're to look back and recall and remember. It's an opportunity to remember what Jesus has done for you. It's an opportunity for you to remember when you first met Jesus or times you've met Jesus. Where you recall in your mind you remember what God has done for you. It's interesting, there are certain things that cause you to remember a person. If I was to give you a list of names, there might be things that would come to mind. For instance, George Washington, what do you think comes to mind? First president. Although there was much more to his life than just his presidency. But that which comes to mind is that which had the most impact. J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Yet there was a whole lot more to his life than the writing of just that. Kirby Puckett, probably a World Series catch, a game-winning home run against Charlie Liebrandt to end uh, and to send the team into that Game 7. Remember Jack Buck saying, And we'll see you tomorrow night. Joseph Campbell. I, I didn't know him either. I just thought, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What comes to mind? These symbols of bread. This cup signifies his blood. What comes to mind is the cross and his love for you. 
that there's not a single person in this room that he does not love and that he does not invite into a relationship with him. I've asked Beth, who, Beth Moorhead, who oversees our counseling ministry and also our prayer ministry, to come and just share, uh, if she would, just a few things. She's been leading some prayer groups, and I've been involved with some things where she has um, used this understanding of the blood of Christ to help kind of give some insight to what we actually remember. Last fall, a friend of mine recommended a book on communion to me, and it was the first of several things that I've read now in order to get a better understanding of this ceremony that we observe, that we celebrate on the first Sunday of of each month. Most of what I have read in these books has to do with looking back at what Jesus did for us, and I apply it to myself and look at what Jesus did for me. My new understanding, which is continuing to grow, has made communion much more meaningful to me. I've had the privilege of taking communion um, in a different way with the staff at the retreat in the fall and with the uh, intercessory prayer group that meets on, on Wednesday evenings. Before taking communion, I often like to read some verses from Isaiah 53 that prophesied what Jesus would go through. It says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. First, let's talk about the bread. The bread, of course, symbolizes the body of Christ, the body that God had prepared for him. In Isaiah, we learned that Jesus' body was pierced, crushed, scourged, oppressed, and afflicted for us. That was all part of God's plan. Remember that when Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Several years ago, I attended a Christ in the Passover presentation, and I learned that every part of the Passover meal points to Jesus, the Messiah. The bread, or the matzah, that is used during the Passover has no yeast or leaven in it. In scripture, yeast is a symbol of sin. We know that Jesus never sinned, so it's appropriate to take bread or a cracker that has no yeast in it. Matzah is also full of holes, which represent the piercing of Jesus' body. And it has dark lines, which signify the scourging or the whipping that he endured for us. So I like to use matzah or something similar to that when taking communion. I've even found a gluten-free version for those of us who need to eat gluten-free. <laughs> Then if you think about the juice uh, that we drink during communion, Jesus took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when I take communion, I like to remember and meditate on the various ways that Jesus' blood was shed for us. Often we just think about these things at Easter, but when we take communion, it gives us another opportunity to remember. So first, in the Garden of Gethsemane, after the Passover meal, Jesus wrestled with his will, knowing the suffering that was ahead for him. In Luke 22, we read, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. 
It takes incredible stress beyond our understanding or experience, fortunately, to cause the human body to sweat blood. But that's what Jesus experienced. He asked his Heavenly Father to remove the cup of suffering from him. But he also knew that it was necessary, that there was no other way to redeem mankind. So Jesus submitted his will to that of his Father. When we take communion, we can thank Jesus for that and pray that we will become better at submitting our wills to the will of our Heavenly Father also. Next, I think of the blood that Jesus shed when his face was beaten. According to Matthew 26, the accusers of Jesus spat in his face, beat him with their fists, and slapped him. In fact, in Isaiah 50, it it is prophesied that Jesus' beard would be pulled out. His face would be marred beyond recognition. And yet, he remained silent. Jesus had a mission to fulfill, and he would not be deterred. He had set his face like flint, because he was determined to accomplish the work that God had given him to do. So when we take communion, we can remember and thank Jesus for suffering humiliation, mockery, rejection, reproach on our behalf. Jesus' blood was also shed by whipping or scourging. And I'd like to read a little bit to you from a, a book on this. It says, prior to Christ's crucifixion, Jesus was taken to the Roman praetorium and flogged with a Roman flagrum, sometimes called a cat and nine tails. This was a short-handled whip with nine long leather straps embedded with small iron balls and bits of sheep bone tied at various intervals. The soldiers would strip the victim, tying his hands to a short post protruding from the ground, and stretch the criminal out with his back exposed. Two soldiers often participated in the flogging. As the iron and sheep bone struck the tender skin on the back, it would cut deep contusions into the skin and the subcutaneous tissues. These stripes were cut into the person's back, back, legs, and shoulders. Flogging was often a preliminary act prior to a criminal's crucifixion. The Romans were permitted to flog a person an unlimited number of times. The Jews, however, taught that a flogging should be 40 times minus 1, or 39 times. This is because the 40th blow would cause death to the victim. Because the Jews' priests were directly involved in the trial of Jesus, it is suspected that he was beaten 39 times. The loss of blood and what medical doctors called hypovolemic shock Christ was unable to carry the crossbar section of the cross to his execution site. Remember that in Isaiah 53, and also in 1 Peter 2.24, it says that by his scourging, or by his stripes, we are healed. The Hebrew word for healed also means repaired or made whole. The word presents a picture of being stitched together. So communion gives us an opportunity to remember and to thank God for saving us, for healing us, and for making us whole. Jesus' blood was shed when the crown of thorns was placed on his head. I'm sure it wasn't done gently, but roughly in a way that would have pierced his head. Jesus wore the very sign of the curse that God had spoken in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned. God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So again, during communion we can remember and thank Jesus for taking upon himself the very curse that every one of us deserves. Jesus' captors may have put a crown of thorns on his head as a means of mocking him, but we know that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we have the privilege of worshiping him. Of course, blood was shed when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Remember in Isaiah 53, it says that he was pierced through for our transgressions. And in Colossians 2, we read that when we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, 
He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that amazing? The certificate of debt created by our sins was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And when Jesus died, he said, to tell us die, which, as Kevin read earlier, is often translated, it is finished. But it also means paid in full. So again, as we take communion, we can remember and we can thank God that the debt we have, we are and we will incur by our sin, has already been paid in full. It is our responsibility to accept that gift and to thank God for his provision for our sin. Finally, the blood of Jesus was shed after he died when a soldier pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water poured out, indicating that Jesus' heart and the pericardium, or the sac around his heart, had been pierced. Jesus' heart was punctured so that our hearts might be healed, so that we might know God as our Heavenly Father and experience his incredible love for us. You know, one of the most amazing things to me is that before Jesus died, he asked God to forgive those who tortured him and ultimately killed him. He said they didn't know what they were doing. We can remember and thank God for that example of love and forgiveness, and we can ask him to make us more like Jesus. As I've taken communion with the staff and with the prayer group, we've used larger cups than the little ones that we have on Sunday mornings. We've sipped a little juice as we've remembered each way that Jesus shed his precious blood for us. I'm often reminded of the scene in the movie, The Passion of Christ, where two women followed Jesus to the cross, mopping up his blood on the ground as they moved toward the place of crucifixion. I wonder if those women had any idea just how precious the blood of Jesus really was. Did they know all that it would accomplish for them? For us, do we know? Do we remember? The ceremony of communion gives us an opportunity to look back, to consider, and to celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. As you're standing in a posture of worship before the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to kind of pause and uh, maybe look down or, or if you want, uh, close your eyes for just a moment. And think about a time maybe you received this incredible gift that you did not deserve. Or a time someone looked you in the eyes and you had hurt or wounded them so deeply, possibly betrayed them, and, and they looked at you and they, they said, I forgive you. Your offense, what you've done. I, I release you. God has done that for you by what he did on the cross. Now, as you kind of listen to that and reflect for a second, I want you to just kind of look in, because when, when you experience that, if you can be in that place, you can get close to that place. It's really a humbling place. It's really hard to have much else in your heart but gratitude and love. And I'm going to ask you to examine your heart and to kind of look in. Amen. We're not only called to reflect and, and remember, but we're called to actually look in. And, and what has happened and what's been done should, should cause there to be an examination in our hearts. So to the Corinthians who are looking for a meal at the end of the service like a little four-year-old boy, Paul writes, what you solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, listen to this, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Master. He says a little bit later, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Master irreverently is like a part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. In this kind of remembrance, is that how you want this to be? 
And then he says, examine your motives, test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. NIV says I, a person ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of his cup. The idea is that you allow for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and, and to allow those things that need to come up, that need to be confessed and need to be examined and need to be put aside and, and, and allow for God to begin to work in you in such a way that you are once again just offering yourself to him saying, I'm yours. I'm yours. If you think of the process of, of gold, what happens with gold is it gets heated up at such a degree that the, the heat and the pressure of that um, causes the dross, the impurities, to rise to the surface so it can be kind of skimmed away. There is in this time when we examine ourselves this opportunity for the Holy Spirit to kind of apply some pressure and some heat so that from our hearts, just in the same way, the dross, the things that need to come up, come up. And there really is an opportunity every time we take communion to introspect. There's a healthy, though, and an unhealthy introspection. Some people, you know, you live in life. Uh, my wife tends to be more this way. I don't, she, she tends to live and she's active and, and I tend to be the other way and I do more introspection and, and sometimes my introspection can become unhealthy and, and sometimes people in other direction may not look down or look in as often. But here's what's important to happen is that it happens in a healthy way and this is an opportunity to pause in the midst of everything that goes on once a month for us to stop and to say, God, here's my heart. I want you to kind of help me examine to kind of slow things down to look into my heart. So a healthy kind of introspection is, is, is that idea of anything that's obvious, that's just kind of out there, gets seen. Unhealthy introspection can happen when you seek to examine, you look down and you begin to um, do so to such a way where you allow your, sometimes even your conscience to dredge up things that have already been forgiven and confessed. This is not what this time is about. It's not about trying to go back to the things that God has forgiven and you've confessed and, and you've made right with him. It's not to go back and to be beat up again. It's not to listen to this voice of shame that says you're not good enough, you don't deserve forgiveness. An opportunity to meet with someone this week who is just sharing that very same thing we were talking about. And he says, I don't for deserve forgiveness. And I said, you're exactly right. That's what forgiveness is all about. But it's really a hard thing for us to understand. It's really it's one thing to say God forgives us and to hear that and to believe and trust that. It's another thing to actually forgive yourself. And that's part of what this process is as you look in. And so healthy introspection is allowing the Holy Spirit to pause us for a second to allow for him to bring to mind. If he brings to mind and his voice will never be one that's that's really shaming. It's, it's not one that comes in an angry, condemning tone. God loves you so much. He is, the, he is the one as a father who comes to you in a very gentle and in a very loving way through the voice and the impression of his Holy Spirit and just says, you know, there's this matter that's going on and I just I want you to start to deal with this. And so a look in is to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything unpleasing to him that needs to be confessed and anything in your life that needs to be cleaned up. And so it's an opportunity for you to offer yourself again to God. We, we look back, we look in, and so now I'm going to ask you to do something, because when you're looking in, you're kind of looking with your eyes down and in. Now it's time to look around. And so before we do that, I want you to turn and look at someone. And look them in the eyes and say thank you for being here. Um, say hello to someone, would you, this morning?
There is a sense, uh, this, this time of looking around, which some of you are better at than others, um, and if you are kind of visiting, I know this is one of those uncomfortable few moments in, in a service. But a look around is really important because it's looking at one another. We've looked in and we're asking God to help us see and understand as we have looked back and seen what he's done for us and we look at our own lives. But now we look around and it's really important that we see how we're relating to one another. Because we've been made new in Christ and because we've been made new in Christ, we've been adopted into the family of Christ and those who follow Christ. So this is a family. This is a group of people who come together with all our differences and all the things that we bring to the table, we all bring luggage from our past dysfunctions. We bring them all into this place and we, we make this big family and we try to walk together and love one another and do this incredibly difficult thing. And that's to do so in such a way that we continue to stay relating to one another, forgiving one another, challenging one another, and walking with one another, sometimes bearing in patience with one another, sometimes having that wonderful experience of doing things in service with one another that brings great joy. Jesus says this is so important that when you look in and you examine your heart, you also look around. In fact, it was so important, this idea of being reconciled, being right, not just with God, but with one another, that in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 23 and verse 24, Jesus, as he's giving this Sermon on the Mount, stops and says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and this was a really important thing that would be done in, in, in that Jewish society, in that, that religious faith of the Hebrew, is he would bring the gift to the altar. He was coming to make himself right with God. What other thing could you imagine as you were bringing a sacrifice in the holy awe of God's presence? And Jesus says, when you're at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, forget God. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. It's really not forget God. Know that God is so concerned about what's happening here gets reflected here. So go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. I mentioned this uh, book last week, the Didache, which literally means the 12 teachings, or the teaching of the 12, was written around 80, 90 A.D., just probably even prior to the Apostle John and his death. Never became Holy Scripture, but there are some good things in it that reflect what was happening at the time. And in, in, in its chapter 14, verse 2, it says, Let none who has a quarrel with his fellow man join the meeting. Don't come into the meeting until they are reconciled, lest your gift be defiled. You know, you're putting something in the offering plate, and he says, don't do that, because in some way it's tainted, something's not right. Make sure you get right. Reconciling, being right with one another is so crucial. This whole process of loving and forgiving and bearing with one another and doing all these things, which we as a church body are, are experiencing at different levels. There are people who are coming who are just thrilled and God is moving and working your lives. There's some who have been here and there's changes and that has caused tension and heartache and, and pain. And, and we've tried to walk through this together. And um, one thing happened this last week. Um, I had a friend who came in with another friend here in our congregation with concerns. And I love this. I mean, I like the idea. I don't like, okay, I don't like someone coming and saying I have something I have to bring to your attention. 
I love the fact that people have the courage to come and to bring what they have. And for me to learn how to do this well, which is to kind of listen and relate, not react and become defensive, but to kind of put my hands here and, and take what they're saying and hear what is true and what is right and to, to parse out what might not be really right and then to be able to be confused and have questions and say, I have questions about that. But I had... Uh, Two women come in and share with me that they were concerned during the vision statement about um, a part of the message about loving God and loving others. Where I shared that it is important that we love people who are different from us. And one of the groups was the Muslims. And I had shared about the fact that there was a, a school and, and, and there was some relationship around that. And my point was merely that we love one another. That God has made us all in his image. I did not, and I just want to say this, if there was some confusion, my, my desire was not to endorse a school that was out of law with our courts. So I just, I say that one is just to recognize that. You know what? I say it because I want to model to you that we need to learn how to listen and love and be able to acknowledge those things and come together around them and, and say, you know what? This is far more than about getting our way or being comfortable. This is about becoming mature people. Every one of us, the goal that Jesus has for you is to grow in maturity. And so when I talk about loving God and loving others, I want to tell you, I think that's one of the most difficult things to do. But I will, will die on this, that we are called, and I know those who we talk to, we will die on this fact that we are called to love every person because they've been created in the image of God. And to parse those things out will always be difficult. That is why Jesus said, and that's why I love the fact that I've had people in this church who have at times come to me with what they have. And there's times I'll listen and, and I'll go, man, I don't think that fits. We have to learn how to do that with one another. We have to learn to live at times in the tension of some of the things that are going on so that we can relate to one another. Our normal course of action, because of what we've actually, all of us have grown out of, is we have patterns that we react to. And most people often in church settings and in family settings, and in businesses are often reacting to one another and are not relating. Relating means hearing and listening and loving and recognizing the fact that even in that process, there's leadership and the leadership will move in a direction and you may not feel heard or listened to. It doesn't, the desire is to do all this stuff well. And communion is that monthly opportunity to stop and pause and recognize we are a family. That we're to be in right relationship with one another. And there are leaders that we're to submit to. And there are those who are called to follow, to listen, and to prayer, prayerfully come and be in relationship around this whole process. And so this look around is important because it means looking one another in the eyes and saying, I want to be right with you. And I look you all in the eyes and I say, I want to be right with you. And I'm going to fail, and you're going to fail. But we have a God who loves us in spite of that as we walk with him. So I challenge you to think about that. Look around. And then finally, there's a look forward. And you were wondering if we'd get to communion, we will. Eat this knowing that this will not be your last meal. This is kind of like hors d'oeuvres for a meal yet to come. 
there is a huge meal that we're going to celebrate. It's called the banquet that we will feast together with the Lord. So whenever you drink and eat this bread, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until, guess what, he comes again. Revelation 19, 6-9 says this. And he points to this meal, this banquet. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright and clean was given to her to wear. And that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people that was made possible because of Jesus. And then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So let me just share with you just one little piece, and we're going to go into communion. Marriage in ancient Israel was a very um, interesting thing. It began with an engagement time. And that engagement time lasted for an indefinite period, sometimes up to 12 months. Although those people in that engagement time didn't live together, it was as if they were as good as married. If there was sexual involvement with another person, that unfaithfulness was actually considered adultery. A broken engagement during that time required divorce, as you think of Joseph and Mary. The wedding and the wedding meal was the consummation. This meal was a consummation of the vows that had been made to one another. And so when Jesus is speaking in parables about a great banquet, and when we read in 1 Corinthians that the Lord will come again, and we read again in Revelation, it all points to this communion meal, this great banquet that we will share with God. The vows which you have made in faith, in grace, in the grace of Jesus, will someday be consummated in a sense in that marriage relationship with the Lamb, where there will be direct intimacy with God and one another. No more sin, no more tears, no more sorrow. There is a time when we will be eating together at a banquet and celebrating all of what is in store for us because of God's great love for us. And so Jesus promises in 14 of John, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go up prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be also where I am. And then let the celebration begin. This is a celebration of what God's done as we look into our hearts, we look around, and we look ahead and say, God, thank you for all that you have. That means what you're going through right now will someday come to an end. Praise God. We're going to take just a few moments and prepare our hearts as the heart plays and just ask you just to prepare your own heart before the Lord. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this, this reminder of what we do on a monthly basis is so significant. Thank you for what it means to us and what you mean to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.